If you want to turn with me to Mark chapter 10, um, on Friday morning I received the message that in some ways I've been waiting for for five years, um, which was, Andrew has the flu. And so, <laughs> as in basically, whenever we're two of us who basically preach here, so there's always a slight risk if one of us can't, if, if one of us gets ill last minute, then the other one's going to have to step in. And that's what happened, but it happened on Friday morning rather than Sunday morning, so I was glad. Um, so I kind of, on Friday morning, I had to think, what, what does the church need to think about? Let's do a one-off sermon and on an area that we, that we need to address for our spiritual health. And I chose money. But we need to think about money. There's a few reasons for that. One is I think we often neglect this subject, partly because we've all seen examples of churches manipulating the people in their congregation and preaching about money, either to kind of get people to give to the church or even, perhaps worse than that, what well, was much worse than that, um, to feather their own nest. You know, prosperity preachers on TV who say, you know, I don't know, the Lord's calling you to give a thousand pounds, and guess who's giving, calling it to give you to give it to? Me. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying <laughs> that's what they do. And, and so we see the kind of worst abuses of the way the church manipulate, can, has manipulated around money, and we think, right, we'll never talk about it. And we don't want to put an obstacle in front of people. And that, there's some truth, there's some good in that. Um, but it means that we neglect a subject that Christ does not neglect. Christ talks more about money than uh, he talks about sex or heaven or hell. I think another reason why we need to talk about this is, if we're honest, this is a very private subject. This is an area that we, I think often if we're picking areas of our lives that we might be unlikely to hand over to Christ, this has got to be near the top of the list. Think about how many people you know who you trust to speak into your life about what you do with your finances. I suspect that list would be very low, very small indeed, let alone the person of Christ. A few weeks ago when we preached on Ephesians chapter 3, I spoke about the idea that Christ wants to come in and dwell in your inner man, take over your thoughts, your desires, your emotions, and kind of said, imagine your inner person like a house, and saying Christ wants to take over every room in the house, that to follow Christ involves allowing him in, welcoming him in, and allowing him to take up residence and to take over what's going on in your thought and your heart. Well, I would imagine our money is a little bit like in a locked box in one room that we've kind of, often many of us, even though we've called Christ Lord, have kind of locked away somewhere and said, you're not getting your hands on this. <laughs> this is beyond the scope of your lordship. The, well, you might have heard the phrase, the last part of a man, and it's man or woman, obviously, to be converted is his wallet. So I think often we are rare, this is an area we're rarely likely to give to Christ. I think another reason why we need to look at this is, I think we've forgotten the extent to which Christ's teaching on this subject is so radically different to the patterns of the world around us. Many of you know that when it comes to the topic of sex, sexuality, relationships, that the Christian vision of life is radically different to the cultural vision of life. And for some of you, that actually repels you from Christ, and we'll leave that whole subject for another day. But my point is, I think that when it comes to money, we rarely think of it in the same terms. 
In fact, I think we often very give very little thought to what Christ has to say about money. But if you just take a moment to consider what the Bible, what the New Testament has to say on the subject of money, you'll see that it is so radically different to the patterns of our culture. Let me give you two examples. First, Jesus says, and we'll look at this passage in more detail later, do not lay up treasures on this earth. And he's talking about then giving and being generous. But my point is, isn't that why many of us came to London? To lay up treasures on this earth? Isn't that precisely what you care, why many, some people come to London? To make their fortune. Or cry, uh, later on in the New Testament, it talks about the love of money, the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money being the root of all evil. And yet, we all know the love of money is what makes our economy work, doesn't it? <laughs> Basically, some of you have financial incentives written into your contracts because your employer is counting on the fact that you love money <laughs> so that it would incentivize you and shape your behavior. If you, for some, to wake up tomorrow and say, actually, I don't really care how much money I have, some of your employers might be going, hang on a minute, that was, <laughs> that was my leverage. <laughs> that was how I was going to get you to work hard to make sure you hit your bonus at the end of the year or the end of the month or whatever it is. That's why people move, move from job to job. From city to city sometimes, because there is a love for money in many. I think we're a little bit like frogs being uh, boiled in boiling water. You may have heard the analogy, but um, you say if you put a frog in, in boiling water, they'll jump straight out. But if you put a frog in cold water and then slowly turn up the temperature, they get boiled alive. And what I mean by that is our culture shapes our approach to money in an absolutely profound but in almost imperceptible ways such that we just take on the attitude of our culture in this area and don't even realize it. Think about the way that comparison is one pattern I think we often take on, that we end up comparing our financial situation with others and actually, if anything, that leaves us less satisfied. Or uh, the consumerism, as well, you know, it's kind of ironic I've chosen to do it today, two days after Black Friday, one cultural festival of consumerism before the next cultural festival of consumerism called Christmas, <laughs> um, that we are between two cultural moments that prove, that speak of the patterns of consumerism, that under, underneath that says somewhere your life consists in the abundance of your possessions, that basically you'll be happy if you have more stuff. That just, that just is in the air, in the ether, and it just rubs off on us. Actually, I think one of the reasons why we don't talk about it, this area, I think is because we don't actually believe that it's good news, that we think of the of Christ's teaching on money as kind of the, the small print underneath the contract that we'd rather not think about. And we certainly don't want to bring it out front. We don't want someone to actually see it and think, oh my gosh, that's what it means. But actually, I think that misses the entire point. I want you to flip the question for a moment and say, what would the people of God, you, the church, look like if we really understood Christ's teaching about money? And you know, I, I think we would look so liberated, actually, that we would be walking in a freedom, a freedom not f uh, controlled by the fear of having enough or an anxiety about our financial situation or a comparison with others, but actually we would be liberated to live a radically generous life, to be, to be able to demonstrate the love of Christ that has come into our lives and to to demonstrate that love with how we deal with our finances, investing ourselves and our whole selves in the mission of God and in loving our neighbor. Actually, we'd be the kind of people that other people would look at and say, wow, why are you never, why have you never stressed about your finances? Why are you uh, so able to be so generous, so lavish? And actually, it's because you've encountered 
the person of Christ and because he has reordered your affections, that, that money is no longer on the throne of your life and that Christ's lordship is felt. I would love it if the people of God looked like that. Before we do that, I, we're going to look at the story of the rich young man. And I think it is a story about money. I don't think you can get away from that. But actually, it's, it's actually bigger than that. Really, what you must hear is Christ is calling this man to be willing to surrender that which is most precious to him. Actually, it speaks of the fundamental call of the Christian life, a call to be willing to surrender, willing to say to Christ, have it all. You may take every part of my life. You are sovereign. It's a picture of the Christian life. And really what that question then forces us to ask, and this is a question I think you should may want to kind of take away with and think about it, is, is Christ worth that level of surrender? Can he be trusted for you to surrender everything to him? Your money, but not just your money, your every part of your life, can Christ be trusted? That is the question this, this passage forces us to ask. So let's read it. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt. This is, so as, this is as Jesus was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him. Knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, looking at him, examining him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It, that may be in your notes, but I believe it's part of the text. How difficult it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Eye of a needle, basically impossible, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So what's going on in this story? How would you have felt if you were watching this encounter? Let's think about the rich young man. This guy is, 
is really a respectable kind of guy. The word that Luke uses to describe this man is a ruler. And it's like he uses the same word that he uses to describe Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. This guy is likely a kind of elder or ruler in the synagogue. The kind of person who people respect, who people look to and say, yeah, that's a, he's a good guy. And you, you see his, his posture, his approach to Jesus. He is earnest. He kneels before him. I don't think he's, he's, you know, sometimes you see in the Gospels, you see people are asking Jesus a question, but they're really trying to catch him out. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think he genuinely wants to know, how do I have eternal life? How do I live with God forever? I think he's asking the right question. He's doing it. He calls him good teacher. He respects Jesus doesn't it make it all the more shocking then that Jesus does the opposite of what you'd expect? Because he sees past the outer religious devotion, out the, out the external um, acts that this man has been doing and says, no, I can see your heart. I can see that actually you have one problem. And he gives him the instruction you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. It's an outrageous response. The disciples are shocked. Later on, they're astonished that Jesus would say this to him. Why? Why does Jesus make such an outlandish, outrageous request to this man? I think you can understand it at a few levels. The first is, he wants more than superficial obedience. Some of you, when you think about the Christian life, either from the inside, you're a Christian, or from the outside, and you're looking in, you look at the Christian life and say, yeah, to follow Christ involves you know, cleaning up my act a little bit. By doing these, let me start doing these things. Start me, let me stop doing these things. Okay, I'll stop sleeping around. I'll stop doing this, and I'll start you know, to order my life rightly. And there's some truth in that. Don't get me wrong. But I think what this says is, this is not tick box Christianity is not enough. It's not enough simply to start doing a few good things and stop doing a few bad things. That Christ wants your heart. He wants your devotion. He wants your love. He wants your worship. And he is saying, I see in you, this man, that he doesn't worship God. That actually what he worships is money. So it's a challenge to that superficial tick box vision of Christianity says, no, God wants every part of who you are. He wants your utter devotion. Second of all, I think Jesus wants to provoke genuine humility in this man. Notice uh, this man calls Jesus good teacher. Jesus' first response is, is it's kind of surprising, or it sounds surprising to us. He says, um, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, I think the implicit question behind that then goes, well, why do you think I am good? That he's starting to almost provoke him to think about his identity. There's a kind of subtle question there. But the guy misses the point completely because then he goes on. When Jesus lists the commands, he says, yeah, yeah, I've done all that. Like effectively, Jesus is saying, no one is good. And the guy's saying, no, I, I am. I don't think he's like just dripping with pride. I think he's just naive. I think he doesn't realize. He's almost looking at spirituality or morality as a kind of superficial external act. Well, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery. But he's missing the fact, and you see this in Jesus' teaching, that Jesus always widens, always deepens our understanding of what, what the real good life is. 
It's not just about adultery, it's actually about lust. If you've committed lust, if you've looked lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery with her. Or it's not about murder, if you've hated someone else, it's as if you've murdered them. Jesus actually shows us the kind of depth to which the calling that God has is much more than just a kind of, well, I haven't murdered anyone. It's about, about your whole heart, about your whole devotion. And I think what Jesus is really trying to provoke in him is a sense here of, Wow, I can't, I can't fulfill these, this law. I, I'm in no way, I'm inadequate to follow God. And why that's so important is because, and I'm speaking maybe particularly to you if you're, not, if you're coming from the outside here, you cannot come to Christ unless you recognize your utter brokenness. The pro- what the Christian, Christians will describe as the problem of sin and your need for forgiveness. You see, if you really underlying deep down think, yeah, I'm a pretty good guy, like this guy does potentially, I, you will see that that kind of basic pride is a complete barrier to a relationship with the living God. See, Christ says this in Mark 2. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician. He's being challenged, by the way. The, the, the Pharisee, the religious teacher, saying, why are you spending time with all those messy, dirty people who are kind of outcasts in our culture because of the way they lived? And Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call those who think they've got it sorted. I came to call those who know that they are sinners. And by the way, if you do choose to follow Jesus, the very first thing you might realize is, oh, wow. Oh, wow. Actually, I didn't even realize the depth of my sin. It's much greater as I come face to face with the perfect man who ever lived, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. I realize the depth of my brokenness, my need for him and for his forgiveness. But I think underneath that even, I think there's a third layer, which I've hinted at already, which is that Christ is putting his finger on this man's heart and saying, I can see there is a love of money in you. I can see there is a trust in wealth in you. And that love is not compatible, that cannot sit with a love for God, a worship for God. Effectively, he is a jealous God. He desires your whole heart. He desires your worship. And he's saying, you, my friend, have a problem with your heart. And until you resolve that, until you lay down that worship of that thing, you cannot come and worship me. As you, you hear this call to come with me, it's like you know, your hands are full with something else. You need to put that down before you come and walk with Christ. And what I want you to see really is, that Christ is, is calling this man, and, he's, and I think it's the call for us too, there's a call to surrender here. There's a call to be willing to lay down every part of your life. And that is, that is essentially you understand that as a call in the Christian life. More than that, there's a call to be willing to sacrifice. That sacrifice, sacrificial generosity, excuse me, is the pattern of the Christian life. Christians are those who are liberated from a worship and a love of money, a trust in wealth, and actually they're free to live sacrificially generous lives. And here's the twist. I want to also show you that, that the Christian life, this surrender and this sacrifice, it, it's entirely possible because the Christian has experienced in Christ a generosity and a goodness, a wealth in Christ, if we can use that phrase, I'm not talking about financial wealth, a reward 
that means that this sacrifice, this surrender, actually doesn't feel like I'm giving something to God. Rather, we feel utterly rich because of what Christ has done for us. And that allows us, that, that abundant generosity that we've received allows us then to live in a posture of surrender and sacrifice. I want to ask you this evening, are you willing to, take, to respond to Christ's call to surrender and to sacrifice? And do you see the reward that he has given us? So first of all, let's talk about surrender. This passage, before we talk about money, is really about the defining posture of the Christian life. The defining posture of the life, the Christian life, is a willingness to surrender, a willingness to lay down almost anything out of an allegiance and devotion to Christ. And it all rests on the question of whether you trust Christ. You see, if there's no surrender, if there's no willingness to surrender, well, I would first of all doubt whether you're really a Christian, but I secondly, I'd say, if there's no surrender, then there is no trust and there is no love. The, the, the fact that you are willing to surrender, to lay down that which you count most precious, is a proof point that, that you trust him and that you love him. And I think that's a defining mark of a Christian. You see this surrender all the way through the New Testament, don't you? See the disciples who he's speaking to. In fact, in verse 28, Peter even says it. We've left everything we had to follow you. The disciples, the fishermen have left their fishing boats. The tax collector has left his tax booth. Later on in the New Testament, we'll see Paul has left his wonderful status as a, a kind of enforcer for the Sanhedrin, a Jew of Jews who'd learnt under Gamaliel, you know, a big, a big dog in the Jewish world. He's left it all behind to instead devote his, his whole life, ultimately we believe, if history, if history post the New Testament is right, to give his life in the, in, the, uh, in the mission to go and take this fledgling movement across Europe and Asia. You see it in the New Testament, the Christians are already, by the time the New Testament's being written, are being thrown out of synagogues. You see that in the book of Hebrews. This talk, he's, the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to a community that are experiencing the reproach and rejection from their community because they follow Christ. Take a wide-angle lens, and this idea of surrender is all the way through the New Testament. In fact, it's all the way around the world. Think about the persecuted church, how much our brothers and sisters in places like North Korea or Eritrea or all sorts of other nations have had to be willing to give up their whole lives sometimes, martyrdom or whether it's their community, their friendships, their families, in order to follow Christ. So what is this surrender? What do I mean by surrender? Well, I think ultimately it's a willingness to lay down anything that is contrary to the call of Christ. For this man, it's a, it's a love of money that Christ is calling him to lay down. For you, it might be something completely different. It might be relationships. It might be there's a relationship in your life that you know doesn't honor Christ, that it's not his will for you to pursue that relationship. And part of following Christ is wholeheartedly being able to say, I'm willing to lay this down. Or maybe that's that secret habit in your life that you tolerate, but you know that Christ doesn't want you to continue with. Or that goal and desire that, that you nurture in your heart that, that kind of drives you and shapes your whole life, but actually, if you're really honest with yourself, has nothing to do with the desire to glorify Christ and to see his, his, his name um, honored and glorified in the world, but is actually more out of selfish ambition. See, all the time as we follow Christ, he will... As we read the Bible, as we hear his word preached, as we spend time in prayer, Christ will put his finger on different things in our lives. And that's what's going on in this man. 
Jesus is putting his finger saying, this, this thing, this desire in your heart, this love, it doesn't belong here. Let it down. I wonder, what are the things in your life? What are the habits? What are the desires? Perhaps what is the relationship? What are the things that you know, if you're honest, don't honor Christ? Because I have a sneaking suspicion that most of the time we know what it is. It's not, the, it's not like a, a total revelation. I think to this man it is a bit of a revelation, if I'm honest. I think he is surprised, and we'll come on to that when we talk about money. But, but I think that often we know what it is, but we're holding on to it, perhaps because we don't really trust Christ, perhaps because we're trying to have our cake and eat it. Say, I want Christ, but I want to keep nurturing this thing that I know doesn't really honor him. But what you have to see is it's intrinsic to being a disciple. You know, sometimes our vision of the Christian life is receive the love of Christ. And, by, and brothers and sisters, I will spend my life preaching about the love of Christ. I've been transformed by the love of Christ. I will go to my dying day making this my life's ambition to say, if you've not tasted the love of Christ, then you haven't tasted anything because <laughs> his love is better than life. I'm, I will, that is a wonderful thing. And we talk about it all the time here. We're called Grace London because we celebrate the, the grace of God. But sometimes a vision of the Christian life is presented to you that only involves that that only involves the forgiveness and the grace of God, but doesn't involve the call to surrender, doesn't involve the sense to which, actually, as you follow Christ, he will call you to die, to X or Y, to say, no, this isn't compatible with me, and you must, that must be part of your vision of the Christian life. Think about what it means to be a disciple. Well, in those days, in the, in the, you, it would be someone who would follow a rabbi and who would l- listen to the rabbi, and he would look at the rabbi and say, I want to become like you, and he would follow his example. He didn't just say, thank you for your forgiveness, Rabbi, and then off he went. He said, no, I'm going to go with the master, and I'm going to walk in his ways. This is what it means to be a disciple. Sometimes, by the way, this involves a willingness to lay down perfectly good things. This isn't just about uh, rejecting sin in our lives. Think about what the disciples say. We've left everything to follow you. And Jesus talks about leaving their families. Well, families are part of God's design for the world. They, they begin back in the garden. Adam and Eve, this gift of family. And this is the place where children are nurtured. And this is a gift from God. And we give thanks for our families. But sometimes you might be called to put Christ above your family. Your, your family may have all sorts of desires and aspirations for your life that do not honor Christ. My parents, not Christian, they say, my my Jewish father says, you're a good son in every way except one. And we both know what he's talking about, which is my follower of Christ. And then I became a pastor and things went downhill significantly (laughs) um, after that. (laughs) Um, My point is, there are moments when you will have to give up perfectly good gifts. Things that we would say, thank you, Lord. But actually, because your mission, because my allegiance to Christ is higher than any other allegiance in my life, I am willing to lay this down for the pursuit of Christ and to be faithful to his mission. And do you know what? I can't prescribe that to you. I can't tell you exactly what that is because each one of you know your own circumstances. I think, actually, you know what? The Lord has called me to minister in central London. And that means we are saying no to living in the countryside and uh, living in the, you know, having a big garden and all that because we, have, we believe that's the Christ's call for us as a family. And so we'll be faithful to that. And I can't tell you precisely what that is, because I think there's something about the individual call of God there. But it's a willingness to lay down good things for the pursuit of Christ and his purposes on this earth. Why? And this is the big one. Because you trust him. Your willingness and ability to do this is not 
because you don't value the things that you're being called to lay down. Say you are feeling called to lay down a relationship. Say you're being called to say, this relationship doesn't honor Christ. I am not saying that will be easy. I'm not saying that to lay down really good things is not hard. The only way that's possible, the only way it's able to lay down a good thing like this is because you have found something better. Because you say, actually, I have a love from Christ that is better than life. And actually, because, because of who is asking me, I'm not just being asked to make an objective sacrifice. I'm being asked to lay this down so that I might follow Christ. So if you're struggling with this, if you're saying, the, what, the, the, maybe you say, look, I've made sacrifices. I've, made, I've surrendered in all sorts of ways and I've laid things down and now it just feels really rather painful and I kind of feel slightly resentful towards Christ. I meet people who say that to me. And what I think you need to see is who is asking you to make this sacrifice? Who is asking you to lay these things down? It is Christ who's asking you. This is the Christ who looks on you and sees the deepest sickness of your heart, like in this story, and who loves you. This is Christ who knows you better than you know yourself, who knows what is good for you, who knows how easily your heart gets attached to all sorts of things that don't bring you life. Here I am, 14 years following Jesus, still making mistakes all the time, still thinking, how did I allow my heart to get attached to that thing? How did I end up obsessed with this thing that doesn't bring me life, doesn't, doesn't bring me flourishing? Might even be a good thing, but how did I allow it to become so, to take hold of my heart? He said, I know you better than yourself. I know what will bring you life. This is not the Christ who remains on the pages of history, but has been raised from the dead and is the ultimate rightful authority, the one who one day every knee will bow. One day almost every knee, not that everyone will be saved, but every knee will, everyone will recognize his authority and majesty. That is the one who's asking you to lay down sometimes really good things or things that feel good. This is the gentle saviour who does not come to kind of destroy you, but who comes to restore you. You know, think about the verses that some of you read in Life Group this week where it speaks about one who, who a bruised reed he will not break. He's saying, look, some of you feel kind of bruised. He's not coming to break you. He's not coming to destroy you. He's not masochistic. He's doing because he wants to restore you and to help you to walk in paths that lead to flourishing. Have you forgotten that, brothers and sisters? Have you forgotten that? Really, when you're finding this hard and when you, when you see Jesus put his finger on things in your life that he's asking you to surrender, the question you have to ask yourself is, do you trust him? Is Jesus trustworthy? Can he be trusted with every big decision of your life? That is the question we must settle time and again. Do you trust him? So that's the call to surrender. Second one, the call to sacrifice. Even if we accept that Christ is not calling us to give everything we own, and I do believe that this, this request, this call he makes to this man is not a, a universal one. You might be glad to know. Phew. So, <laughs> this, is, this is not saying he's not calling us to give everything we own. I think Christ is calling us to live lives of sacrificial generosity. We cannot see his rebuke and challenge to this man and not hear him put his finger on our hearts and say, are we in danger of the same things that he's putting his finger on here? A love of money and a trust in wealth. Or, that's one altar, or are we walking in the freedom 
that Christ brings? Are we able to be sacrificially generous? Those are the two options. Let me ask you just to examine your heart. First of all, you have to see the risk here. I think it's important we hear this here and we examine our hearts here. Why? Because this danger that we have fallen in love with money and that we're trusting in wealth is one of those dangers that we don't really see. If I could forgive me the slightly crude analogy, none of you commit adultery without knowing that you're doing it. You don't, you, you, when you're committing adultery, you know that you're doing it. But when you're greedy, when, your heart is, when, when the love of money has taken grip in your heart, the thing is you don't even realize it. Think about this man. He's the guy everyone's looking at going, he's a pretty good guy. He's respectable. He's, maybe he's maybe I think spiritual even. But underneath the veneer of religiosity, actually his heart has been gripped by another love. One writer, when I was reading about this topic of, of basically greed or the love of money, said, actually, we almost just start with the assumption that this might be us because it's so easy to deceive ourselves and not to see this as, put, take it, as in our hearts. So what is this love of money? Well, I think there, these are two things going on. One is the love of money and the other is a trust in wealth. The first thing you've got to hear is it's not simply the same as having wealth. See, I think the more money you have, the harder it is not to love money. I do think it makes it harder. You see this in this story when he says, uh, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He's got so much that he's like, I can't possibly give this away. I've got so much money. It kind of sounds ironic, don't you think? <laughs> um, but it's true that the more, you, the more you have, the more it's harder to not be controlled by the love of money. But it's not, it's not as simple as that. Uh, writer, I don't remember his first name, so I've just got McDonald here. You can Google it afterwards. It is not the rich man only who is under the dominion of things. They too are slaves who, having no money, are unhappy for the lack of it. What he's saying is you can have a little or you can have a lot, but it doesn't, actually it's about whether you, whether you desire this, whether the love of money has gripped your heart, not about how much money you have. So what does the love of money mean? Well, I think it means the desire for money. I think we might call it greed. We might call it a, a fixation with having money which ends up controlling you. You know that Jesus speaks about the way that you can't have two masters. The way that the desire for money can end up controlling your life and shaping you and how you live. Money isn't just money when you love it. It becomes the object of your desire and the basis for your joy. So how would we know if we have this love of money? Well, your attention. Is your attention often on how much money you have? Are you often evaluating your financial circumstances and, and thinking about the amount of money you have all the time? Are you finding yourself lusting after money or possessions or different circumstances? Have you heard, you've heard the phrase when they talk about those, those TV shows about property, they call it property porn. And I think that, that word is instructive. It says actually there's something about those TV shows that cultivate and come about, they kind of, people watch them because of the, they foster a desire for those things. What it's saying is, are you one of those people who's forgotten Jesus' words in Luke's gospel? One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. To be in love with money is to have forgotten that and to start believing that the number of square meters in your flat or the number of objects that you own or X, Y, and Z, fill in the blank about your possessions are like the fundamental shaping realities of your happiness. Now, don't get me wrong, there's, there's good gifts we enjoy. We're not ascetic, ascetic. I, you'll have to go in, 
I had a, <laughs> the word I'm trying to get to there. Um, asceticism, that's right, thank you. Um, we're not, we're not, we don't deny that the good gifts that God gives us. We, don't, we celebrate and give thanks for a roof over our head, for meals to eat, for all sorts of gifts. And we celebrate them and we give thanks for them. We're not denying the good gifts from our Father in heaven. But we're, not, but we're equally able to say, you know what, actually, if God took X or Y or Z away from me, because I have Christ, my happiness is not going to be destroyed. Another way you might look at this is covetousness. Do you compare your situation with others? Do you find yourself looking and longing after other people's circumstances? This is so hard in a city like London, full of wealth and all the other things that come with it. It's so easy to fall into comparison and covetousness. But, you know, comparison is the thief of joy. It never makes you happy to do that. Or do you look, when you love money, it's no longer just something you enjoy or something you steward for God's purposes, but it ends up being a marker of your status and your identity, a thing that defines you. And actually, when you put all those things together, it ends up controlling you. It becomes not like a slave, but a master. That's one way we love money. The other way that Jesus speaks about here in this passage, he talks about those who trust in wealth. Money controls us when we trust in it, when wealth becomes a kind of functional savior, where we look to money to be the way that we protect ourselves against the, the challenges of life, the suffering of life. We look to money and say, well, if I have enough money, then actually, come what may, I'll be able to face the challenges of life. And we look to money to kind of insure us or manage or diminish our risks in the future. How do we know if we're trusting in money? Well, are we anxious or worrying about money? Ironically, you trust in money, the way you can see it is you're constantly worrying about whether you have enough, uh, even if you're actually you're amply provided for. Or actually, another way I think often is that you find it hard to be generous. This is big. If you see need in your life, if you see things that you're like, yeah, actually, I want to help that person, or you know, there's some need in that, in that situation, and then you then go, oh, no, I couldn't possibly because you know, I'm not sure I have enough. Actually, that's probably a sign that you're trusting in your wealth that you're not trusting in your Father in heaven, the good provider who provides everything you need, but instead you're trusting in your wealth. See, the reason why money is such a compelling God replacement, or an idol, as we might call it, is because it promises all the things that our hearts long for. It promises security. It says, if you have enough, don't worry, then it'll be okay. And actually remember that this is, the this is a kind of insecure un uh, money that doesn't, ensure you against all the calamities of life, of disease and death and all the th misfortune that might um, come upon us. Or it promises comfort. But of course we know that it's nothing compared to the comfort, the love that we receive in Christ. It's a counterfeit. So if that's the danger, what's the alternative? What should the people of God look like? As Christ comes into our lives, what we see in the New Testament is we experience a liberty. As mammon is ripped from the throne of our lives and Christ becomes on the throne, the people of God experience a freedom to be generous. They experience a reordering of their hearts, that they love God and they love people. And from that love, from that freedom and trust they experience, they are free then to live radically generous lives. They are liberated from fear. Think about Zacchaeus. Christ enters into his life. He's a tax collector, an uh, immoral man who's defrauded loads of people. Jesus comes into his life. He has dinner with him. He speaks to him. We don't know what, quite what he says. But at the end of the meal, Zacchaeus, this man who spent his whole life defrauding his people and robbing them, says, actually, I'm going to give half of it away and I'm going to give four times back to anyone I defrauded. 
Money is no longer the thing that he longs for. The man who spent his whole life and broken loads of relationships to get money now feels, actually, you know what, I've got a liberty. Or think about the woman who pours the perfume over Jesus' feet. Mary, you know, thousands of pounds worth of perfume, a year's wages, just broken on Jesus. Well, not wasted, because it's worship. But she's able to do that. She's able to sacrifice what must be a kind of family heirloom, probably the most valuable thing she owns, on Christ. She's able to give him what she, the most precious thing she owns. That is the radical generosity, the liberty. Think about the book of Acts, how it speaks about they even sold fields and they, they, gave, they, they made sales to care for one another. What it says is when Christ takes over our hearts, when he reorders our loves, that we love him, and because our love for him, we love each other, the whole way we deal with money changes. Actually, if you love Christ, it will be reflected in how you use your money. In 1 John chapter 3, uh, John puts his finger on this, basically saying, if you, if you encounter need, if you really love them, you'll do something about it. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother, his fellow Christian, in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Just saying you're going to pray for someone isn't actually the same as being generous to help the needs around you. He says, if you actually really love someone, you'll do something about it. Maybe ask a slightly more pointed question. If we really care about the mission of God, but never give towards the mission of God, never give our time, our talents, or our money to the mission of God, can we really say we care about it? Can we really say that God's purposes in this life are the prime, or a primary purpose of our lives, the one that we want to give ourselves to, if actually that's not reflected in how we deal with our finances? See, this generosity, it starts in the heart. It's not behavioral first. It starts with a love. It starts with a love for Christ that says, because I love you and because I trust you, I'm able to recklessly give myself and my finances away. How is this possible? How is the scale of generosity possible? Well, it starts, like we did with, said with surrender, in trust. You will, not able to, you will not be able to live in the kind of generosity that I think the New Testament calls us to unless you believe that you have a Father in heaven who provides for you. That you say, actually, I don't need to worry about my finances because I know that my Father in heaven provides for me. Think about what he says in Matthew 6. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and your, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And then he goes on. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what should we eat or what should we drink or what should we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Saying, actually, if you, if you know that you have a Father who provides for you, you'll be free to live in generosity. I think also that you'll be free to live in generosity when you live with an eternal perspective. Christ speaks often about the idea of not hoarding up wealth on this earth where moth and rust destroy, in the words of Matthew 6, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. He's saying essentially when you give, 
actually there is an eternal reward accruing. And I don't quite know how it works. And I know it sounds almost a little bit like a Swiss, doesn't it? Give your money now and then you'll get it in heaven. I don't think it's quite like a, a simplistic like that. But I think Christ is unequivocal in the New Testament that there are eternal rewards. That you are saved by the blood of Christ, but there are eternal rewards for a life of faithfulness. And one of the ways of life of faithfulness is how you give. Saying, don't just hoard up wealth on this earth. Hold up eternal wealth, so to speak. And what that really says is you are liberated to be generous when you live with an eternal perspective. When you say that this life and these circumstances that I live in now are nothing compared to the eternity that extends before me. And so I'm willing to live with that eternal perspective and to be generous now, to sacrifice, so to speak, now so we receive reward later. And that brings me on to my final point, reward. I've talked about sacrifice, and I've talked about surrender, and at this point, some of you think it's just the Christian life just feels costly, a negative balance, so to speak, in my, in my bank, maybe literally. Um, but what you've got to see is that this call to surrender and sacrifice only makes sense when you realize that we are rich in Christ. You know, the disciples in, in, in verse 28 of this uh, Mark chapter 10, Peter basically says, yeah, don't worry, Jesus, we've done this really well. He says, Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. And I think there's a little bit of kind of look at us. You know, look at us, not like that guy. We've, followed, we've left everything to follow you. But Jesus, <laughs> Jesus says, no, everything you give in this life, everything you sacrifice will be returned to you a hundredfold. There's a sense of to which you, will, you can never outgive God. And I'm not talking about in this life necessarily financial rewards. I'm talking about as we surrender and sacrifice, we experience a richness and a wealth in Christ. We experience the generosity of Christ. That means we can never kind of outgive God, that we always receive more than we give. See the excessive rewards in this in description. He says, some of you will lay down family but you will receive a new family. This is what we've been speaking about in the last couple of weeks, that as we, the church becomes that new family, that the people who, who are willing to lay down their lives and not just kind of connected by, a, by, by blood, but actually even have a stronger connection because they have Christ connecting them, and because of their connection in Christ, they are willing to serve and lay down their lives for each other. Like young Amy, who spent two hours looking after my kids yesterday because I had to preach this sermon, and, and Jen is really sick at home with the same thing that Andrew's sick with. And, and you know, that is just a small moment of what it means to be part of the family of God, to, be served, to serve one another in love. And if you're saying, well, I haven't experienced that, I say, be the change you want to see. Actually, we are called to embody this and to move towards each other in love. That's how we experience the richness of Christ we lay down our wealth and yet we receive rewards in heaven. But ultimately, the ultimate reward is Christ. We have laid down our lives or we call to lay down our lives, but we have received Christ. And that is far greater, he is far greater than anything we have given up. Think about how Paul puts it in um, Philippians chapter 3. He's talking about his great status, his Hebrew of Hebrews, um, a persecutor of the church. And then he said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I've lost things, he says, but I count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ. I've lost reputation. I've lost status. But actually, they're rubbish compared to what I have received. Christ himself. In Christ, I've received a love that is better than life. A fountain of love that continues to flow into my lives. That is not based on the acts that I have, the things that I've done, but it's based on the love that sent Christ to the cross. I experience a peace that comes with knowing that my Father is in control. A joy that comes from knowing that my future is far better than my past. That I have got an eternal eternity with Christ that comes what may. The suffering I might experience is nothing compared to what I will receive and what I experience now with Christ and what I'll receive in eternity. You, you are much richer than you realize. I think about my own life, and uh, some of you may don't know this, and this probably requires a lot more explanation, but before I was a Christian, I was openly gay. And I, when I became a Christian, I was fully expecting to live a celibate life and to give up any prospect of being in a relationship and blah, 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 blah. Not how it ended up. Um, married to Jenna, got three children. But the point is, when I was... When I, became a Christian, I was willing to lay down the prospect of being in a relationship because I found a love that is better than life. I found a love that was better than any love that I might have found in the world. I found actually in the church a wonderful sense of brotherhood and family and acceptance. And whereas one who'd always been like a kind of outsider, outcast, I found brothers who accepted me and loved me and said, you belong here, you're a brother, and who honored me, and it was just incredible. And I tell those relationships continue to this day. But my point is, I was able to basically say no to the prospect of being in a relationship, or that's not how it worked out, because I found Christ. And he is better than anything else that he might call you to give up. Matthew 13 puts this really well, because it's Jesus, no surprises. This is the picture of the Christian life, lest you be an inner illusion. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He sells all that he has. He gives up everything he has. But in joy, he does it. He's able to renounce everything because he's found this pearl of great price. He's found this, this treasure So if you're finding this hard, if you find the idea of surrender and sacrifice hard, have you received the treasure? Have you recognized that Christ is this great treasure? That though you are poor, you've become rich in Christ. And that wealth that you've received in Christ is so much better than anything he might call you to give up. It's rubbish compared to him. So do you hear his call to lay down even that which is most precious to you because he's worth it? Do you hear his call not to be controlled by the pursuit of wealth or to trust in how much money you have, but instead to live free, to live sacrificially generous lives because money's just money and you worship the Lord Jesus and you have a father in heaven who loves you and provides for you and so you can live generous lives. Do you hear Christ's call? Do you hear his call to surrender everything? to live sacrificial lives and to receive and dwell upon and celebrate the richness of what we've received. That is Christ's call to us. That is what I want us to respond to now. Why don't we pray?